Dear friends, I suggest for you a moment to look to your left, or I command you to look to your right, or if anyone and all who would look up, I might give you $50,000. Now, each of those words and calls, or commands even, were different. Everyone sitting here in a maybe slightly different way, some similar, but some very different, heard the word and responded to that word that came to you. Now, it's likely, children, you remember what happened with the children of Israel in the wilderness. A couple weeks ago, I preached on that passage for the Grand Rapids congregation, a very simple story that Jesus himself gives as an illustration in John 3. And he says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, that whoever looked to the serpent, a brazen serpent that Moses had fashioned according to God's command, would be healed if they had been bitten by the fiery serpents in which they were certainly doomed to die. A very simple thing. Look. They didn't fashion the metal, the, the, the brazen serpent. They didn't lift it up, and the only command that came was, look and live. It seemed illogical. It seemed to defy human reasoning. But it was God's way. God's plan. God's command. Jesus expands on this when he, of course, is making the comparison and analogy of he himself is the one is going to be lifted up and how that that look is expanded to mean believe. Listen to what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. Well, dear friends, this passage that comes to us tonight from the Old Testament, I think is similar. It is coming from the mouth of the same God as Jesus' words. And we'll turn to that passage now in verse 22 of Isaiah 45. God is saying, and he's repeated this over and over through this passage, I am God, there is no one else. Look unto me 
and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the theme I have selected to write over this passage is God's word to the ends of the earth, with two thoughts. First, I want to look at the command here in this verse, and then secondly, the promise, the command and the promise. Well, Isaiah the prophet was called of God, his lips anointed from off of the altar, to bring this message to Israel, uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, who were still in bondage. And in spite of their still being in bondage, God still acknowledges and owns them as His people, even though they were not acknowledging Him as their God. They were seeing all the nations around them flourishing. And God wants to remind Israel... There is no other God. Do not be looking at all the other nations around you because they are also in my hand. They do nothing outside of my will. They actually do my bidding. They serve my purposes. Because I am God, he says, and there is no one else. Else. There is no other God. Oh, these others, and even you, some in Israel, have trusted in gods of wood or stone. You pray to a God that cannot save you. There is no God beside me, he says. I am a just God, he has said, and a Savior. Therefore, Israel, therefore, people in Kalamazoo, look to me. He is saying, and be ye saved. That's our first thought, the command. That's what this is. Look unto me. But children, there are two things we need to understand before we can properly look at the command itself. And the first is, who is speaking this command? And then secondly, who's the command come to? Well, it's obvious in this passage, but even at the end of our verse, it's, for I am God and there is none else. This is the one who has been speaking throughout this chapter, throughout this message of Isaiah. There is no other God's. But me, the just God, the God who is a Savior, and this God is speaking to the ends of the earth. The one who created the heaven and the earth, who created you and created me, who created everything for his glory, who who actually is upholding it till this very hour. All other things that people bow down to or worship or reverence, God is saying they are not gods. We need to pause there. Because as we read the scriptures, we are told, and I think if we think this through, we understand it as well, 
that we have formulated, created, or looked to other things that we have made out to be gods, a god of even our own imagination or what we would call an idol. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And so as you think about that, I want you and and I want myself to think about what am I clinging to? Where do I go immediately to find answers? Maybe it's Google. It could become a God to us. Maybe it's something else that we put our trust in, our work, our job, or maybe our, our parents who, who were very godly and God has led in a very powerful way and we haven't had those kinds of experiences so we, we put our trust in them or we put our trust in something else other than uh, this God. And sadly, even in the church, there can be those who have this notion that somehow we can serve God and sin at the same time. That somehow we can be believers and unbelievers at the same time. I'm not talking here about what Luther also talked about. We are sinners and saints. There's that dichotomy. But I'm talking about those who imagine in their thinking I can be somehow in a relationship with God just sort of believing the truth of his word that I know I need to be saved, that I know I need to be converted, and at the same time carrying on with my life as I've always lived it. Somehow we can imagine we can be pretty good Christians just waiting for God to speak, to act. And until then, we just do our best. And I would assert that we're deceiving ourselves if this is our thought. He who is not in Christ is outside of Christ. Jesus himself said that in that passage I quoted to you when he had reflected on the serpent lifted up in John 3. If we have believed in him, we have eternal life. If we have not believed in him, we are under condemnation and wrath. These are the only two possibilities. And so when God comes to us with this kind of command, in our minds, we have all kinds of things and voices that can begin to speak. And I think for some, there is this problem that we have carved out in our own understanding a God of our own thoughts that doesn't conform to the God who says here in this passage, I am God. There is no one else. And we actually give more credence and more value to the things that we say about this God than what God himself has said about himself. 
Maybe I can give an example of what I mean. There are those who I've met who have grown up in a Reformed and conservative church who make a statement such as, my sins are too great. What do you think? Who's their God? He's not big enough to save. I often say to that person, you don't even realize the half of what your sins really are. Because if you really understood and you really grasped what you were saying, my sins are too great, you wouldn't do anything but flee to him because he's the only one His word has told us that can give you pardon. Why do you delay? You don't believe what you are saying you confess. So your caricature, your view of God must be distorted. You must be worshiping a false God. Oh, it's good to be convicted of our sin, but it's the devil who keeps you from God. There are some, perhaps, who think that their sins provide them more pleasure than a service of God would provide. And again, a distortion of who God is. True joy, true pleasure, true life is found in Him. Nothing, I can assure you, though it may feel good for an hour or ten minutes, or whatever extent of period of time it may be. It may seem to feel good to your flesh, but the true pleasure, the lasting joy, you're not going to find in anything outside of Him. Maybe another would say, well, I'm not a great enough sinner. I don't know my sins enough. That doesn't mean we should go on and sin so we get more convicted, but I would assert to you to make that statement, I need to know my sins more, is not grasping what God himself has said. You're admitting by that statement, yes, I'm a sinner, but when God says all have come short of his glory, all are worthy of condemnation, that includes you. And that means there's only one remedy. There's only one place to go. So, coming back to the question. Who's speaking in this text? God. Is this God who is speaking in the text the God you have in your understanding, in your heart, in your mind, who you worship, who you pray to, who you think about? And then there are also those who think they can save themselves. It's just at their fingertips. Waiting. I remember when I was a teenager, I knew I had to be saved. I'd committed a a great number of sins in my teen years. Tragedy. And I knew Jesus was coming. I knew the clouds were going to part someday, and I would see him. I knew that. So do we all. But you know my foolish thinking? And my idolatrous thinking? I thought, When I see the clouds part, then I will bow. Too late. Forever too late. 
Have you learned the lesson a simple young man who is making confession of faith learned? They had to come before the elders and the consistory, and he was asked how he was saved. And he said in a simple way, God did his part, and I did mine. That drew a responsive pause from the elders. And finally, an older, wiser elder asked him, what do you mean? He said, well, God's part was the saving. My part was the sinning. He said, I had run from him as fast as my sinful heart and rebellious legs could carry me, but God took out after me until he had tracked me down and found me. That's what God's doing here with Israel, with you in this command. So the God to whom you pray, the God who is speaking this message to you tonight, who is he? Is he a gracious God? Is he a loving God? A compassionate, ready to forgive God? Do you believe his word as it comes to you in its simplicity and its commands and promises? I began the introduction by a suggestion, a command, and a promise, if I could have. I I can't fulfill that even with one person, $50,000, but we're talking here about God. The mistrust we have of God. should cause our hearts to be filled with grief. To distrust what God himself comes to us and says and to think our own thoughts rather than his is an affront to his glory and his majesty. And maybe you have shaped your idea, your formulation of who God is by some of your experiences or some things people have told you or maybe even what you've heard from those who are supposed to know the word of God. I have met with countless individuals who question, doubt, God, his goodness, because they've experienced tragedy and trauma and pain. They will tell you, I cried out to God and he didn't answer. He wasn't there. And so their idea and their formulation and their thoughts about who God is now begins to affect every day going forward. Others have heard things like, Christ is the most hidden person of the Trinity. 
And so because they can't seem to find him, they excuse their search, so to speak. They excuse their disobedience to the commands of God because of this so-called saying. What I'm saying to you, friends, is every thought and idea that we have in our minds that we don't bring to the test of the Word of God and does not conform to the God who here speaks in our passage, it's an idol. It's, it's not what He is saying about Himself. And what God sends His servants to do and sends me to do is to uncover those very places in people's lives and in my own that we are hiding from God. To expose them and to bring them into the light of his face. So that what? We, like Adam and Eve, run away, hide ourselves, and cover ourselves? No. Misunderstanding of who God is who came walking in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? Oh, we like a complicated religion. Many rules, many rituals, many things that need to be done or certain degrees of which we need to feel. And all in the process, many are hindered from looking to Christ because of obstacles that have been put in the way. I wonder... If I could be present with you week after week after week and begin to lay out a system, a way in which if you did this and you prayed 30 minutes in the morning when you woke up and you made sure you were in church twice unless you were sick and you read this and you did this and you gave that and you, you prayed this way, if, if you really started believing what I was telling you, wouldn't you also start doing all of those things assuming you could earn the favor of God? It's exactly how our natural hearts would fall into line with such a teaching. I remember visiting someone and asking him how things were spiritually. He said, uh, the same. Meaning, he was still unsaved. And then he said to me, those things just don't happen overnight, you know. Meaning, being saved. You need to understand the situation. The man was a few months away from dying. Elderly and sick. And he was saying it, does, it doesn't just happen overnight. It takes a long time for this to take place. And no doubt it was in some measure because of things he had heard or Believed mistakenly, perhaps, or had been told. That this humbling process requires for aged sinners a a long time. And he added, man's heart is so hard, he's such a great sinner that without the work of the Holy Spirit, he can't do anything. What he said was entirely true. But the fact is, he didn't believe a word of what he said. 
If he had really believed what he had said. Wouldn't our answer be instead in light of all that God has said about himself? True, Lord, I come in prayer. It doesn't happen overnight, I know, perhaps, but I am such a great sinner. Lord, if thou would but have mercy on me, it would be the greatest wonder. I'm not worthy of it, but I will look to him. I will plead upon his word of promise. My hope is alone to be found in him. Nowhere else. I believe, help my unbelief. That's the language of faith. The other is of unbelief. And faith, though it be the grain of a mustard seed that's reaching out and and crying out empty hands to this great God who speaks, finds that he gives far beyond what we can even dream. The one whose confession I just described as coming as a poor sinner at the throne of God's mercy and grace, pleading for mercy, is the one who is looking, longing, looking to Christ. And you'll find at the root of their heart, and not looking to all other places and all other people and all other things, but to God in Christ. There are those who rest upon many things, the sacraments, reading of their Bibles, the means of grace, whatever it is that you too may be resting upon, God is calling you tonight. Hear him. Who is he? Do you know him? Look to me. And even our look is but a means to the end of his promise. You know, when you get into a car and you get into it and you're admiring the car and you're looking at the car, but it brings you to the destination, that's the purpose of the car. The destination is the goal. If being in Christ, being saved, is the goal, it's faith, is the means God gives, gift of His grace. Then we don't rest in the car, we don't trust in the car, we look to the destination it brings us. Salvation is of the Lord. He will not give his glory to another. So that's who's speaking in our text. But secondly, we need to look at to who, whom he is speaking. Notice here what it says in verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The God who we have sought to set before you in the first point here, the creator of all, the one who made you, the one who brings his word to us, is speaking not simply to those Jews in exile, but to the Gentiles who were their captors, to the ends of the earth. In other words, 
what Isaiah, what God is saying here is, this God is speaking to all who hear his word. It's not simply here confined to Israel. He's not speaking to those who simply worshiped other gods. There is not a person here tonight to whom this word of the creator, the living God, the one who says, I am and there is no else, he is saying to you, look to me. And therefore, it's wrong to say God's not speaking. He is. You're just not listening, if I may put it in those words. When we don't hear his voice, do we believe that this is the God who is speaking? And God is going to say, listen, listen to what he says right after this. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, lest you question if God is speaking, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, it will not return. The creator God, the one who made us, the one who could in a moment destroy us for our sin, comes so And says to you and to me, look to me. Such simplicity in the word, look. But unbelieving people do not like that message. They are looking to do something. What they need to be or to do And God is saying, it's not in what you do or what you could be. It is in who I am and have done for sinners like you. To respond that way to this look and refuse to look because of its simplicity is something like, children, you read in the history of Naaman. Remember, he was the leper. And he had come to the prophet to be healed. And what did the prophet tell him? Go wash in the river Jordan. Illogical, unreasonable, doesn't make sense. It's a dirty, muddy river. He looked at the command, go wash in the river Jordan. He thought, what? No. Of course, he was persuaded otherwise. But many people in hearing the commands of God, hearing the gospel that comes to us, respond the same way that Naaman did. But the power, you see, was not in the water of Jordan or the rivers of Parfar or whatever water he would go to. Where was the power? In the word of the promise, of the command that God had given, go wash, seven times. And so it is in this passage. God is faithful. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And there are some people who go to church their whole life And there is an unbelieving uh, 
drunkard, an unbelieving uh, murderer, an unbelieving homosexual who hears the gospel for the first time and is forgiven in a moment and the heart of the one who's gone and placed himself in the means and had come to a misunderstanding of God in his heart can become jealous, angry, and bitter. Maybe you would say, I dare not look. I fear lest I look and deceive myself. Dear friend, the greater deceit, if I may use that analogy, would be Believing the lie that anything but looking is going to save you. Is your heart broken when you realize God himself has spoken over and over and we continue on our way disbelieving his words of truth? Imagine those who have never heard this word, never read Isaiah 45, never read the New Testament Gospels, never heard of Christ other than a curse word they've heard as they grew up. But we have heard who this God is, what he promises to those who look to him, who cry out to him. And even when you cannot see the way, even when you have confused thoughts about God, what this passage is saying to you is, look, cry out, call, surrender all to him. Tell him all these things. When he says here, look, he in essence is saying, take away your attention from what it's fixed on now if you have not found salvation in Christ and look, look only to me. Anything outside of me in Jesus Christ will never satisfy the deepest longing of our souls. This God who is speaking is a God who delights. He commands us to look. Look to this God who says, though your sins be as scarlet, though you're sitting here tonight and maybe think and are convinced that your sins are great, it is the Holy Spirit who can teach us this and does teach us this, but he does so for a purpose so that we look to him, to him for salvation, to him for deliverance. Though your sin be as scarlet, they shall be as crimson. Though they're as red they will be as, though they're red as crimson, they will be as wool, they will be as snow. And if we look at our sin, and if you were to meet me after the service and describe for me your life, your sins, and if I were to describe for you my sin, we cannot paint it as black as it truly is. But that's not where we're to stay, where we're to end. 
He changes, he transforms, he saves. Black sinners close them in the white robe righteousness of Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, children, you'll remember this too. When, when you had leprosy and you went to show yourself to the priest, let's say you had a couple of spots breaking out on your body. If you only had a spot or two, what would they do? They would send you outside of the camp. But if you came to the priest and your whole body was covered, you were declared clean. You could stay in the city. And in a similar way, an analogy perhaps, if we think we're sinning a little bit, we, we need God a little bit, we need a little bit of a Savior, we don't really understand our sin and the holiness of God. But as he teaches us, as he uncovers for us our sin, we have nowhere to go. And he, we don't need to go anywhere else. He calls us to come to him. Look to me and you will be saved. You will be saved all the ends of the earth. The devil would have us quite satisfied with us thinking, yeah, I probably should do that. I, I need to look into that. I need to consider that. No, that's not what God is saying. He is saying with command, look unto me, all the ends of the earth. Calvin says, hitherto, God has addressed the Jews only as if to them alone salvation belonged, but now he extends his discourse farther. He invites the whole world to the hope of salvation. He commands all to look to him and to the precept or command he adds a promise which gives it greater weight and confirms it more than if he had simply given a bare, naked command. Imagine God as the creator at every right simply to say, look to me, look to me. He has that right. But notice what he does. He follows, as Calvin says, with a glorious promise. Look to me and be ye saved. That's the second thing I want to lay before you. You cannot separate these two. The command and the promise. You cannot have the, the promise without the command. It's, it's presumption. You can't have the command without the promise. It's legalism or perhaps self-righteousness. This is salvation, Jesus said, that they would know thee and him who thou hast sent. There is a name given here. Jesus is saying, in essence, his father is saying here, look to me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. I am. Verse 13 says, thus saith the Lord. His covenant-keeping name. And who is Jesus? Jehovah's salvation. This one who is speaking in the text is not only our creator, the one who is commanding us, but the one who has sent his own son to accomplish what we could never do. He paid the price with his own life by his death on the cross. 
So whatever you feel in your heart, whatever you're thinking in your mind that is keeping you from fleeing to him, confess it to him. I feel like I'm a hypocrite. Tell him. I feel like I continue to sin and I I, I don't know what to say or to do or how to pray or what it is to believe. Tell him. Look to him. Believe that when you come to him, he receives us graciously. I often have said in sermons, and I I say it to you again, about Jesus. Look at his very character. It's when we see Jesus, we're seeing God in flesh, walking in our presence. Was there anyone who came to Christ, who Christ said, I don't know what to do with your situation. I don't know how to provide in your circumstance. Not one, not one. And do you suppose, again, a caricature of who he might be, do you suppose you would come to him and confess your heart, lay it open, cry out to him, he's going to turn you away, or say, I don't know what to do in your situation? He is saying here already in the Old Testament to these Jews and to everyone who would hear, look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Let me give you another word picture, as Jesus did. When you look to him, or you, you cry out to him, or, or you're clinging to him, or you, you, you run to him, what does that look like? Well, he gave us a very good picture, analogy, of these two boys who, whose father had given to the younger one his inheritance. He went off and he sinned. And the other one sinned at home. But this one went off and he sinned, spent all of his living, and when he came to himself, what do you say? I'm going to go home and say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Not worthy to be called your son. Make me as a servant. And the parable isn't that about him. It's about the father. And the father seeing him a long way off ran. smelly pig son. And he embraced him. And he washed him. And he clothed him. And he gave the fatted calf. That is this God. Is that the one you have met? Who you heard Speaking, who speaks to you through his word and his promises. If you don't see him, if your heart is hard, go tell him. The wonder of wonders here is not only, as Calvin said, does this command come, but also this promise. Be ye Saved. Let me put it this way. Any who even are looking is already evidence of what he's doing by his spirit within you. 
Even our looking, as I said before, when Jesus is making this analogy, it's the, the faith he is seeing, believing. And that's what they did in Israel when they lifted up the serpent. Anybody look to that, that one lifted up. And so anyone who is looking to him, God is saying here, be ye saved. Maybe you say, I can't pray, I can't repent, I can't look, I can't believe. Well, he's sending his ambassadors to take these very words that he would have said to you, that you would hear them as his own. Look to me and be ye saved. There are many sermons got preached today. In China, Africa, UK, South America, North America, Russia. Don't know, maybe someone preached on this text. But you, specifically, have in God's providence this word. That comes to you. And maybe someone asks, well, when is the best time to look? I read that in our call to worship, Psalm 95, today. Today, harden not your heart. Look to me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's It's obvious, to some degree, to me at least, that God is requiring of us an answer. Are you going to look? Are you going to continue to look at other things? The answer that can only be given to this command is yes or no. It could be as the two sons in the parable, the one that said, yes, yes, sir, consider it done. And then he went and did something else. And the other said, no, but then he eventually did. And Jesus said, which of these two did the command of his father? The one, though he said no, went and did it. So when we look at this command, what is your answer going to be? What has your answer been till this moment? Was it like me when I was a teenager? I'll wait later. Later. Maybe some of you are now married, have children. Later. Too busy. Later. This word of God comes to you today. God himself is saying one way or another, We will make this confession. There are those who do not look to him because they are afraid, perhaps. Because they have some idea about him as one who would not receive them graciously. Or maybe they they think they've sinned against the Holy Ghost. Or other things may keep one from looking. And the very fact that God knows everything about you and that he comes to you tonight 
and says, look to me, ought to be the most positive encouragement for you to do that very thing today. He says, there is no other God but me. He has just mentioned he is a just God and a Savior. And he has said, I said already, I swear by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Dear friends, I don't know how else to say it. One day, you and me and everyone we know are going to be standing in the presence of one we look to and will see. We're going to see him. And the question will be, have we looked to him now? Do we run to him? Do we flee to him? Do we need him? Is he the savior we need? The one who is able to cleanse us from every sin? Because he says, and Paul, you remember, quotes this as well in the New Testament, but he is saying here, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, shall confess, Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? and Savior. There is none else. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious God, We are grateful for thy grace and kindness to many here who have heard this word, who have fled for pardon and refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ and have found him far, far better than they could ever dream. Those who have come in all their sin and all their having gone aside and having worshipped other gods have heard the call to look and have been redeemed, cleansed, forgiven. And so, Lord, do that great work afresh and anew for us but also for each one of those who by their own testimony know about Thee, but don't really know Thee. Lord, give them to look today when we hear Thy voice. Give no rest to those who are outside of Christ. And give them to make haste for their life. Go with us into this week. Keep us from 
allowing thoughts in our hearts and minds that do not reflect who thou art, what thy character is. But help us more and more to worship thee and serve thee and adore thee and live a life of gratitude for what thou hast done for us poor sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.